Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Charity Coffee Chats. We are back for, I guess, our second episode of 2024. Definitely not as long of a delay as the last one, uh, but it's just always great to get back and talk about all things charity uh, here in Canada. And we are continuing our series on fundraising and revenue development. And before we dive into that and introduce this week's special guest, how are how's everything going for you, Crystal? It's uh, it's only been a couple weeks since we chatted. I had a week long work trip in the middle of that, so I can't say life has been too exciting for me. Uh, other than I'm really looking forward to having my own bed and some home cooked meals. Uh, but what about you? How are things going for you? Mine are a lot slower paced than you because I've been uh, keeping up on your socials, and you exhaust me with all your travel and but it it seems like a barrel of fun I know you get a lot of networking and learning and when you're away but you're probably your family's probably really happy to have you home um yep. not it was a long it was a long stretch for sure oh poor Carly <laughs> um I think a couple of weeks we leave to Disney World with um our family so that's an exciting adventure to look forward to so get a little break before um, the bust out of grant season. So it'll be a lot of fun. And today we also have an incredible expert guest and I would love to introduce John Johnson today. Um, when I think about fund development and, and any expert that I have in my repertoire, John's name comes first to mind. So thank you for being with us, John, today. And also, this ties in good to all of our travels. Tim traveling, I was traveling. You have a great adventure coming. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your travel, a little bit about yourself, and um, some fun facts, maybe? Well, um, thank you for having me. And uh, um, I guess in a few weeks, I'm going with um, a few volunteers. We run a major fundraising event in Red Deer called Zed Haunted House for 31 years, and I've I'm going in a couple of weeks with um, a couple of volunteers and bringing them to the Trans World Conference in St. Louis. And uh, uh, it's always interesting when we go over the border and customs ask us where we're going. We're going to a haunted house convention and they look at you. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny, but it's, uh, it's a reward for the volunteers. They both put in 12 years and been supporting that event. And it's my way of bringing them there and rewarding them. And me, meeting the best in the business from Universal and Disney and everything. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, I've been um, honored to visit the haunted house several times. I do think it gets scarier every year, but the support from the community to with the haunted house fundraiser is outstanding. And so I commend you on so many years. How many years did you say you've done it in a row? 31 years now, and uh, we're raising over $100,000 a year for the Boys and Girls Club in that event every year. That's mm -hmm. incredible, mm -hmm. and such a unique fundraiser, mm -hmm. and such a long duration for it. So I am also equally impressed with your years in this field. How many years have you dedicated to you know, working in the charity sector? Well, on July 3rd, it'll be 41 years. Oh. Excellent. And how did you land upon um, this journey? Well, um, I guess it's interesting because when I was in university, I was in the kinesiology program and my major was outdoor education and coaching. 
And as a summer job, I came to Youth HQ for a summer job. And then it was the same time in 1983 when they were starting the Boys and Girls Club and uh, developing Camp Alexo. And uh, those kind of things really turned me on. So I got the opportunity to be on the ground of something, starting something pretty big here. So uh, to make things so short, I never left. But my, my motivation in the field is simply that I really believe in what the organization does its commitment to its mission and the impacts I have witnessed over the years really validates my longevity here. Mm. And uh, I'm as passionate about what we do as I have been on day one. And uh, like my background experience are primarily in program development, but I've grown into fund development over the years due to the necessity and support of the programs as we've grown. I've augmented that growth through continuous learning opportunities there whenever possible. My favorite quote is experience is the best of teachers for it gives you the test first and the lesson second. I really believe that. And uh, that's how I've accomplished a lot of my learning. Yeah. And a lot of your success. Mm -hmm. And I asked you this right before we started, do you have the same spark you had in the beginning? And we just so happened, I had a hard time finding you today because you're in a new center for social impact in this mega building. I think it has six floors. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time finding parking. So this is a big deal. Yeah. Um, so speak to us a little bit about your new facility and how that came about. And I think these big projects like this would be exciting and exhilarating to be part of. Well, part of the strength, I think, of our organization, we're called Youth HQ, but we actually, that's an administrative structure that looks after the big brothers, big sisters of Red Deer and District, the Boys and Girls Club of Red Deer, 49th Street Youth Emergency Shelter, and then we run Camp Alexo, a summer camp there for kids. And I, I think that organizational structure has really uh, served us well. And COVID's a good example of that. I'll use that when a lot of agencies were, were uh, shutting down programs, closing doors, and so forth. Um our board says we can't afford to do that because our families and the children we work with need us more than ever now to keep them connected. And uh, so we adapted our programs and our services. And because we've, um, with that organizational structure and what's the beautiful thing about it is it's only one administrative structure that's looking after two charities and two other programs. So the public donated dollar goes that much further. And every once in a while, the program's need to support their one another and that kind of thing. And it served us well. So last year we were offered a unique gift from um, a company that donated um, $3.2 million building in downtown Red Deer to us. They picked us as a charity of choice. And a lot of that had to do with our organizational structure and how we operated. And, and our goal is, well, if we did it for so many years, why can't we do it with the community? So now we're in a new building. It's the old professional building, downtown Red Deer. And it's an older building, but it's in amazing shape. And uh, it's now called the Center for Social Impact. So our whole objective with this building is to um, have a building where charities are centered. And then we share resources and we save operational dollars. So... It's centrally located with easy transportation, reduced barriers to access, readily accessible to all kinds of services under one roof. 
So if you picture a single parent mom or an immigrant family coming in looking for supports, well, they can get a variety of supports just by walking in one door. Uh, very affordable rental space there for the charity, small and large office spaces, meeting rooms, large training spaces, parking, building maintenance and security. And we even have built-in IT support for the agencies that are here and that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's an opportunity for organizations to collaborate, work together, and uh, save on operational costs and expenses and do what we do best and serve children and families. So well, congratulations about it. on that mm -hmm. project. That's, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And I know in an earlier episode, we, we were speaking about like nonprofits and charities need to operate in different ways if we're ever going to actually create social change and and break down those barriers and like congratulations because I think like this is a prime example of being able to be creative and you know not thinking of each other as competition but as all working towards the same goal you know I I use the example and in an earlier episode, you know, I worked in a building where there were four charities and we were all paying for four photocopy leases. Like that's not a good use of, exactly. of donor dollars. So like next time I'm in Red Deer, I, I need to come see this because I think this is a uh, a fantastic way to to move charity and social entrepreneurship forward. And I think this is just a, a great model. Mm -hmm. um, and, he, and he spoke a lot about your your big event, which again, you know, I think you said raises a hundred thousand dollars a year for, for programming, how, you know, spending every, every organization spends so much time trying to plan and run large scale events. What are some of the strategies that you use to coordinate this event that now has been really a legacy event for the last 31 years? Well, to be honest with you, Tim, I, we only run two two major events a year. Um, the Big Pursuit, which used to be Bowl for Kids there and supported Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And we also run the Zed Haunted House there for the Boys and Girls Club in the fall. The rest of the year, we're involved in a lot of smaller fundraising. But uh, the strategic ap approach I use in event-driven campaigns, everybody, every charity is running events. They're doing galas. They're doing, doing this and doing that. But... I always start with a planning committee. So I go out and I recruit, for example, the haunted house event or the big pursuit. I recruit specific skill sets. I want a person on the committee who's got some marketing promotions, volunteer coordinating, skill set specific to the type of event, communication, sponsorships, and someone with some business relationships. So the two primary elements necessary for a committee to be successful is leadership and relationship development. And that's where I come in. I spend my time supporting, motivating, and empowering the people I've recruited. That's my job. It's like a well-known Chinese proverb that states the best of leaders are those that when the job is done, everyone else thinks they did it. And that's a, exactly so. The members in my committee have a lot of, uh, they're empowered and they have a lot of ownership of the event. And when you've got ownership and you're, you're, have the freedom to be creative and uh, it's motivating. And people, I mean, I've got people on my committees that have been with the committees now 12 years. And and I think that speaks of itself. So 
With regard to overall fundraising, you touched on it a bit, Tim, is uh, it's important for charities, especially now, uh, the world of fundraising is changing and the public donated dollar is becoming much more, um, much more competitive. And uh, so in a fund development plan, my role with Youth HQ is to ensure that we've got as much of a balanced and diversified plan as possible. So a solid plan would see no funding source represent more than 30% of your agency's operational budget. Ideally, it'd be 20%. There are some organizations that, you know, their sole funder is 75, 80% of the budget. And that's high risk. If that funder were to ever pull out, that'd probably be the collapse of that organization, that kind of thing. So we've got our core funders with the City of Red Deer, SESS, and our uh, support there in United Way. But we also have some fee for service and we rely on donor support donations fundraising events third-party initiatives gaming activities and granting and the list goes on but i would what i try and do every year is make sure we've got a balanced approach so if anything suddenly happened with one of those sources we could respond to this and it wouldn't be at the expense of the programs um and it's also about stewardship too. Um, our donors and supporters over the years have been with us over the long term. And it's my role as a fund development manager is to support those donors. And finding out what motivates that donor to give is critical to being a good steward of them. I keep in touch with my donors all the time, not asking them, asking them maybe once a year. Sometimes a few donors have even called me now and said, John, you stop asking every year? Well, I'm asking out of respect, out of courtesy, if you want to support us. He says, I'll let you know when we're done. And uh, But the donors want to know, uh, they want to know that their donation is making a difference. And, and I can let them know that by keeping in touch three, four times a year and sending them a, a story of an impact of a program they donated to and the impact it made on a family, that's what they want to know. And uh, and that motivates them. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You cannot say those words enough. Mm -hmm. It's so critical. Um, yeah, those are good thoughts. Mm -hmm. Now, strategically, do you have kind of a, a dollar amount for donors that you, you keep, you know, that relationship building? You can get high donations, low donations, but... What is your strategy to manage kind of the threshold of, of that? Often what I try and do is let the donor make that decision. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, with a lot of our events and activities, we've got uh, sponsorship packages. For example, we're looking for a $5,000 donor to support our Rally for Kids event out at camp on the July long weekend. And um, a few $1,000 donors and that kind of thing. And uh, and then I let the donor make that. Uh, I remember I went once, uh, we were really looking for a donor in Red Deer and I went to have lunch with him and I asked him for $10,000 if he would consider supporting us $10,000. And he had this long pause and he looked at me and he goes, oh, I'm flattered you think I have that much to give, but I'll give you five. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it, it but again, it, it goes right back. I still have a really good relationship with that donor to this day. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
And it's also how you thank the donors. Here's one amazing story I got to share this stuff. I can thank a donor all I want, but what I try and do, we run a campership campaign, for example, every spring, and it raises dollars to help send kids from low-income families to be able to go to summer camp. You got a single parent mom with three kids, $400 a week to send a kid to camp. Mom can't afford that 1200 She needs help to get her kids there. So she applies there for a subsidy. We have a campaign where we go out and we recruit donors to help sponsor kids to go to camp. So when September rolls around, I take kids who directly benefited from that, buy them some pizza, I bring them here for lunch one day, and the kid phones the donor. The kid directly thanks the donor. And I won't use any names, but this one donor, the boy called, and he was one of our major donors. And um, so we called him and we scripted the kids only the first line. Hi, my name is such and such. I'm just calling to thank you for helping me go to summer camp. And then the conversation will go where it goes. And the donor turned around and said, uh, so do you have a good time at camp? And... He's about a nine-year-old boy. And he responds, he goes, it rained all day. My clothes were wet. I lost one of my boots. My mom got mad when I came back from camp. And and it just went on and on. And I'm going, what's this? And the donor responds, so do you want to go to camp next year? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, so he hung up. The conversation was uh, over. And about an hour later, that donor phoned me directly. And he said, that was the best thank you I got. And he donates a lot in the community. And he said, that warmed my heart. That was so real. And I could tell that was unscripted. He still donates every year. And he's up to donation mm -hmm. considerably. That was an, originally a $300 donation. And now he donates three to 5000 a year. That's a huge impact yeah. idea. Yeah. I love it. That's incredible. And then it also is easy that's easy to facilitate yep. mm -hmm. yeah yeah brilliant so this gets us to the challenges in fundraising um fundraising comes with different landscapes different times of of the year you've probably seen a lot of ups and downs in your 41 years right mm -hmm. um can you share with us some obstacles on how you have overcome some of the biggest challenges in your role well I can think immediately of our two major events. One was the onset of COVID restrictions in the spring. That's right smack in the middle of our Big Pursuit campaign. We are already soliciting pledges and everything for that event. And everything was about to shut down. And uh, so what we do was, uh, what do we do? How do we adapt to this? Do we just cancel the event, give everyone their money back and deal with it? And we said, no, let's... Uh, Let's adapt the event, and we had a committee meeting, and we uh, adapted the event into an online format so everyone could still participate, and the event still met its goal. It raised this money. One year during the Haunted House, we had ours as a charity Haunted House event. We had a for-profit company come in with a lot of financial backers and was competing with our Haunted House event. And my volunteer committee was, oh, no, this is... And and I just reinforced to, to all of them, we've been here 25 years, you guys, 24 years at that time. Um, we got a lot of loyal supporters in the community here. We just worry about what we do. Don't worry about what, and plus, 
I'll tell you one thing. Anyone who goes to haunted houses, if there was five of them in Red Deer, they would go to all five so they can compare and this and that. And actually, in fact, that year when I changed the committee's attitude and got them to focus on what they do best, um, it was one of our best years, <laughs> you know, so. And I mean, fundraising continues to be ever-changing environment. Traditional fundraising through donations, grants, gaming, events remains useful, but face ever-increasing competition. Nonprofits need to adapt, and you mentioned this earlier, Tim, and diversify our funding revenue sources. Some of these areas that to diversify include social enterprise, partnerships, expanding fees there for service, asset and brand valuations, and using social finance so to leverage those assets and, and uh, plan giving. <coughs> That's another one. I mean, uh, right now, um, we're about to experience the next 10 years, the biggest transition of money from boomers to millennials, the biggest movement of dollars that's ever been. And uh, I think it's really important that, uh, so we really developed a plan giving program. Mm -hmm. And we elaborate the program because plan giving is great, but you never know you've got a gift until you get it. And and we've been fortunate to receive one gift already, but we also did a campaign where we um, asked someone and to promise to give. Give us a promise now that we're in your plan giving time. And uh, we got five now. Oh. And uh, there's no commitment or anything in writing or anything like that. But I think that's an area we've got to go. Like, um, I think when we're soliciting donors, uh, the boomers there, for example, you got to adapt your strategies accordingly. Like boomers make up fundraising is focused uh, when we're going after targeting boomers. It's all about face-to-face -face and it's all, we, it's all about phone. They love the glossy mail-outs and uh, smiling beneficiaries, nonprofits offering a legacy. That's attractive to boomers. So they like the brochures and they get that. Uh, when you're reaching out to the millennials or Gen Z, they barely answer their phones. Well, the best way to reach to them is through online platforms and mobile giving initiatives. And we've done that as well. But then when you look at a lot of the baby boomers there, their priorities right now are health, social services, and religious causes. Where millennials, it's civil rights, healthcare, and education are their primary areas. They like. And then uh, Gen Z is all about the environment, human rights, and equality. And so if you know what motivates those donors and you can adjust your, your, uh, your ways of asking and so forth. Um, a staggering thing I found was that 39 to 40% of multicultural Canadians would give if they were asked. A lot of them mm -hmm. had not been asked. And it reminds me of a, a speaker I heard once at a conference and he said, the number one reason people don't give, no one asked them. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask. <laughs> so That's a good idea. You have a great resource here that we can maybe share um, the link on our podcast or on our socials. Mm -hmm. I'll maybe share it with us on our socials. That's also the impact of technology. In today's digital age, uh, technologies we find most effective is obviously online engagement through an event, your website, social media platforms to promote our communications and engagements. And uh, 
implementing online giving tools. We've got online ticketing for our events now and, you know, the old QR code. I want to know more about this. Bang, scan it, you get the information. And, and uh, I have a team member here who's uh, wonderful at uh, monitoring all our uh, social media channels and everything. And our followers have just skyrocketed to, I, I guess he gave me a report the other day, just on Facebook, we're over 3,000 followers now on our Facebook. And, and that's become and that's, a big, big job right. in charity is managing those Facebooks. You know, when you're talking Facebook, for example, who are you talking to? Mm -hmm. You got to know your targets. The kids aren't on Facebook. Their parents are. <laughs> the mm -hmm. kids aren't. The kids are if you're TikTok and this and that and Snapchat. So we're on all, all the platforms. It depends what our reach is and what our goal is, which platform we use. I think that's incredibly important because, you know, that's that's exactly the thing is, A, everybody thinks that, oh, I can post on social media and they're going to respond. But it takes time and resources to make sure you're putting the right message on the right platform to see the right people. So uh, I think that's critical. And it's really evolved you know, how you utilize technology and social media. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago, I remember having a conversation in the office and we were like, oh, we want to try online ticketing. And we got pushback from people saying, oh, I'm not ready to put my credit card online. And that wasn't that long ago. And I mean, now I, I you know, can use my phone and tap to pay directly from my phone and just, can't think of the last time I took my card out of my wallet. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's a crazy world of how fast things can evolve. Yeah. It's ever changing for sure. So John, as you as you talk about you know your events and your donor community, you shared some really great examples of you know conversations that you've had with donors, um, and you know uh, their just willingness to come back time and time again. And I I like the example you gave of. Like, why do you keep asking? Like, we'll tell you when enough's enough. That just shows the support the community has for, for you. How do you go about fostering and, and building that community support year in and year out? Um, I think the biggest thing is um, we share our costs. Uh, we used to be, this agency had a reputation for many years that we were one of Red Deer's best kept secrets. And... <laughs> That was actually to our detriment. And and then a lot of our marketing and everything with our staff and so forth and our volunteers, we need to get out there and tell the stories, tell the impacts and the difference that we're making to help foster community support. So when we were just talking about social media, it's not only being on social media and putting on what's happening in the agency, it's like, share some success stories, put it out there. Here's a a big and little who went to whatever or um, uh, kids on a ski trip and show pictures and then they see their friends. Oh, yeah, I was on that. And then you get your followers and they engage. OK, what's the next story and what are they talking about next? Um, and and I think attracting support is one thing, but keeping that support committed to your cause is simply about building a positive engaging relationships there with your supporters so when we have some of our major events and our major donors used to haunted house as an example i get a whole stack of complimentary tickets and i go to all our major supporters whether they support the haunted house or not just say hey take your family out to this or or do this and do that 
and it it's just maintaining that relationship. And in the last while, we've noticed because well, well, the economy took a dip and so forth. A lot of donors who typically throughout the course of a year would donate to maybe five different charities couldn't afford to anymore. So they they still donate, but they donate to only maybe two or three. And we tend to be in the mix still of that two or three. And I think that speaks a lot to our our donor engagement or steward. And even with volunteers, um, uh, volunteer recruitment is getting harder and harder, especially in the bigs nationally. They're identifying um, it's people don't want to make that commitment. Mm -hmm. And and uh, the one-offs and this and that. So it's getting more difficult. A lot of agencies are going purely into in-school mentoring now or or our, our match programs and so forth. But I find, uh, and we're challenging our volunteers this spring because we have a recruitment campaign. Uh, you, you'll notice all over red there on the buses will be big brothers and sisters in the next while. And and it's um, it's the messaging. And, uh, but it's um, the number one recruiter of volunteers is volunteers. So your volunteers, if they're happy in what they're doing and their program and so forth. So we're putting out a challenge to all our volunteers. We're asking them to bring one person in the door. Can you reach out and bring one person in the door? And we're going to have some uh, match friends nights at Boston Pizza and here and there. And then we're asking some our bigs and littles or, or bigs to come and bring a friend that does. It's a great idea. Yeah. There, you're going to be your best advocate to recruit, you right? Betcha. You and betcha. I think just sitting in this beautiful building, um, that is a big representation of the trust and the legacy this agency's built with its community. Mm -hmm. um, because you had mentioned it was kind of first through word of mouth. So the transparency and trust has built very strong. Mm -hmm. and And that is probably part of your success as well. So talking, just transitioning from that, how do you measure success or what are some go-to methods that you can kind of keep tabs or other charity directors or fund development coordinators? Uh, what are some tools or what are some strategies that you use to measure the success? Well, before we even engage in any fundraising initiatives, we always apply a decision-making matrix. And actually, I got a copy of it here. I can share well, with you. Well, we can throw that up on our socials too. Yeah. Yeah. A decision making matrix. Oh, this is and, bold. And that gives us a uh, an objective way of looking at it because often people will come to us and, uh, um, example, a company may call us and say, We're doing a, a customer appreciation barbecue and we'd like you to be the, uh, the charity of choice. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, thank you for thinking of us. And so, what are your expectations of us? And they say, well, you, you got to, we'll just give you a table and a tent and put you outside the door. Oh, so we got to buy the product. We got to buy this and buy that and buy that. And I'm using that as an example. Yeah. But when you put it's that- It's a popular example. <laughs> yeah. But when you put that in into our matrix, um, it's very weak because our return, our ROI on that, our return on investment is very minimal. And a lot of people- do not value volunteer hours. It frustrates me. I put a dollar value on our volunteer hours. You want to call people and ask to make a commitment and come out and volunteer for your organization. And and uh, so 
that's part of our matrix. How many volunteers are needed? How many hours? And I put a dollar value on that. And how much staff time? And staff yeah. time and all that is worth. Mm -hmm. So we use a matrix. And the other point is, for example, when we look at activities, we tend to categorize them into one of three areas. Fund development, fundraising is our primary reason for this activity to raise dollars. Or is it a volunteer recruitment event? Is our primary focus to recruit volunteers? Or is it just a community awareness event? And then when we're talking about measuring success, that's what guides us in terms of our key performance indicators. Like if we're going to, an example, if we went to a program fair once as a volunteer recruitment event, I think we talked to three people for the whole day. Was that worth our, and then we would go to another event and we engaged over 150 people that day. Much more worth our, so we try and put a measure and then after every engagement event, regardless of what it is, and fundraising event, we always have a debrief and evaluate and look at our goals and, and whether they are achieved or not. So some goals, when you say measuring success, it could be a financial goal. It could be an engagement goal. It could be, but we try and determine that before we even mm -hmm. even uh, get there. So I hope I answered that. These are great tools, and yeah. we will share them. No, they're they're absolutely fantastic, and you have been so gracious with your time, John. And I think we could pick your brain forever. But probably my last question for you is, like thinking about whether a great book or a speaker or something that you could recommend to maybe somebody who is either just getting into the fundraising world or maybe has been in the fundraising world for a while and just needs to be rejuvenated. Uh, what are some tools that you, know, you could not live without or tools that you know, help motivate you in the world of fundraising? Well, it was interesting when I saw that question, I thought, hmm, tool. And it came to mind initially as, my initial response was my smartphone. If I don't have that smartphone, if there's a tool that's most valuable to me, it's that smartphone because um, I'm reachable, I'm responsive to whether a donor phones me or a business friend or a volunteer because my number's out there. Mm -hmm. If I don't have my tool, the phone, that's number one. And the others is my team, is the team I work with. Because often people say, well, you did um, um, amazing John. I don't like that because it's it's about we. It's about team. Mm -hmm. My team did amazing. Thank you very much. And obviously the computer and plus passion. I think a lot of people would comment when I'm talking to them and would sell them on our program is when our team talks about the programs and the services and they really get a sense of our passion for it. And that's that's positive energy and that gets other people excited when they see your passion. Um, I was interesting, I was at a conference and uh, there's a guy from Mark Simpson, a charity fund development manager in Phoenix, Arizona. And he was at a conference and he did a whole presentation on the charity he represented. And I'll never forget this. He says, uh, at the end of the presentation, he goes, Everybody, please raise your hand if you would give me a dollar to support this charity. And everyone's hands in the whole auditorium went up. And he said, oh, okay. Please raise your hands if you would give me a million dollars. No hands went up. And he said, okay, 
now I know what range I'm working with. <laughs> and, and it was really funny. Everybody cracked up. Uh, two years later, one of the attendees at the conference who, who owns a company donated $2.5 million to it. So wow. you, know, you just, it, it's things that you learn along the way. Um, Tim mentioned books. Um, I can think of two books. One book is called The Power of Ted. And what's really strong about that book, it's, it's how you work within your team. And I'm a manager of a team and we got a small team, but I'm still the manager of the team. How do I work there with my team members? Do I come from a passion-based, outcome-focused approach? And what I mean by that is I coach them. I get them to create, to be creative, and to challenge them. That's a positive approach. The other flip dynamic on that is dreaded drama, anxiety-based problem-focused. Do I rescue them? Do I persecute them or make them the victim? And the power of TED, that book is amazing. And it just walks you through strategies to be able to, you know, work successfully with your team. And the other book is called Boundaries There for Leaders. It's a compelling book that emphasizes the importance of setting, maintaining healthy boundaries as a leader. It provides you with some practical guidance for establishing clear expectations, fostering accountability, and creating a positive and productive work environment. And what I really like about it is it really stresses the phrase, you are ridiculously in charge. And I tell my team that, like my Marcom coordinator marketing, you are ridiculously in charge. So every aspect of that, don't come back to you. That's that's your baby. You do it. And it empowers them too. So those are two books I can highly recommend. I think they're and excellent. I see books. that one boundaries for leaders is on your shelf. So I'm definitely gonna pick that up. Okay. Those sound like great resources. Yep. And I see the passion is still the same <laughs> as the, like 10 years ago when, when we sat together. So thank you for sharing that and so much incredible um, learning things in this podcast and so many great resources that can be shared with, with other um, charity leaders. And um, I'm still learning every day. I'm still learning every day. Well, the best leaders are learners. Well, I'm learning about social finance right now. And boy, that's a learning curve. I'm working on that, what that looks like. But that's that's all part of learning and growing within the agency. So, mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for all your incredible preparation for the podcast, sharing all of your secrets and your tools. Um, this is going to be a really great one. Thank you to both of you. Thank you very much. No, well, thank you. And uh, again, we'll make sure you shared some great tools. We'll make sure to include those uh, in the episode description. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back on a, a future episode to pick up where we left off. Uh, but to everyone listening, again, please uh, make sure to share, like, subscribe, and uh, we look forward to chatting with you next time.